0: You guys, thank you so much. Um, I could not have gotten where I have, first and foremost, without the Lord just pouring into me at every second. And with the prayers of all of you, there was a lot of me texting you, and you know who you are, like, I need you to pray for me right now because I have a 20-page paper due in three days. And, and you did, and you prayed for me, and my husband, Dave, I keep saying this is his degree just as much as mine because he has done all the other things while I do homework. And so I just love you, Dave, and I thank you for, for all of your support. And what's just, inc- there's just so many, and someday I'll tell the story, so many incredible ways that God moved for me to get this degree. But um, some of you might remember when I licensed for my, pastor, um, my pastor's license, and Pastor Dan and Pastor Mary prayed over me, and they spoke a word over me. And Pastor Dan said that God is going to restore what the locusts have eaten, And, and I, and I prayed on that and I thought, Lord, what, I mean, you have done so much. You have brought me so far in my life. What could that possibly mean? And for those of you that don't know that, um, my first marriage was a marriage full of abuse and domestic violence. And I actually met my ex-husband in college and I had to drop out of college because of the abuse. And just a few months ago, as I was praying, because there was times I'm like, Lord, I do not know why you have me in this, but okay, I am just being obedient to you. And he spoke that word that you prayed over me and said, I have restored. I have brought you here to restore what you thought the locust had eaten. So God, God is incredibly, incredibly good. I feel like too, coming up here this morning after worship, I'm just like a rat. I just was wrecked. I'm like, we could just say, okay, thank you for coming. Let's start the dessert auction, right? Because... That was just, God was just moving, moving in this place this morning. And I am just so privileged and honored to be able to share with you this morning. Um, if you call Life Spring home, you might have noticed that we've been going through the book of Acts lately. Um, wow, it has been so powerful. I just love how we've been covering these chapters. I'm taking notes, and I'm going back and re-listening to the sermons again because there's just so much good stuff, right? So whether this is your first time hearing the books of Acts or the hundredth time, it's just awesome how God reveals so much to us through his word every time we read it, right? Every time I learn something new. So for the last couple of weeks, we were in Acts 16, and this has been Paul's second big missionary trip with the help from Timothy and Silas and at some points Luke. And if you remember, Pastor Nan, a few weeks ago, showed us the map, the big map of their travels, and that was this massive area, if you remember. And, you know, these guys weren't just jumping on the next plane, you know, to Derby or to Lystra. There's no calling ancient Uber, right? These guys are walking. And they're just having this huge journey together. And Pastor Jesse pointed out last week in the second half of Acts 16 that it was not smooth sailing for them. So if you remember last week, Paul and Silas, they were beaten by a mob and they were thrown in prison. But God revealed himself in such a mighty way within that prison. And isn't it amazing how we can be in the most desperate of circumstances and God will move in the most miraculous ways. So today we are going to be tackling all of Acts 17 and it's a big chapter and Pastor Jesse and Pastor Van told me that I only have two hours to cover it. So we're going to have to go kind of quick. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I can totally get through this in an hour and a half. It'll be fine. <laughs> now, we, we do have a lot to cover today, but this is such a remarkable chapter of Paul and Silas evangelizing in Thessalonica and Berea and Athens. Now, when I say the word evangelize, some of you might have some very distinct images or thoughts on what that looks like. Some of you might think of somebody going door to door and handing out Bible tracts. Some of you might have pictures in your mind of really expressive pastors on TV, perhaps with some interesting hair or makeup choices. Uh, Some of you might picture someone on the street corner with signs and a megaphone yelling, Turn or burn! The end is near! But when we look at the word evangelize in the Greek, the word literally translates to a bringer of good news. Paul and his team were evangelists, bringing the good news of Jesus. As believers, we are called to be evangelists, to bring the good news. But sometimes we hear that word evangelize and we get this knot in our stomach and our palms start to sweat because to step out and share with unbelievers can take us way outside our comfort zone. How many of you um, participated in walking the neighborhood across the street here when we handed out flowers before Easter? Can we just applaud them? Um, That's evangelizing, right? It takes a lot of courage and boldness To knock on someone's door that you don't know. What each of you did that day was share Jesus with our community. And that is exactly what we've been called to do. You see, spreading the gospel isn't a mission that Jesus asked us to do, it's the mission. And Jesus said in Matthew 28:19 through 20, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you." I read a story recently about a couple in Mexico City who are missionaries, and they have a four-year-old daughter named Geneva. And Geneva loves her Barbies. And she likes to take her Barbies and carry them around and tell them stories. She loves hanging out with her Barbies. So her dad thought this is an opportunity to give her a lesson about evangelism. So Geneva's dad suggested that she teach her Barbies about Jesus. So, Geneva went back to her room and she gathered all her Barbies and she put them in a circle and she told them that they needed to believe in Jesus in order to go to heaven. And just a few minutes later, she comes out of her room and proudly announced to her dad that all of her Barbies were now believers. And when her dad asked, How did they become Christians so quickly? with a big grin on her face, she said, It was easy. I just sat on each one of them until they said yes. (laughs) Somehow I feel this might not be the most effective evangelistic method, but don't we sometimes, with some people, see that when they're trying to reach the lost? I mean, maybe not literally grabbing people and sitting on them. But sometimes we see this in-your-face, uncompassionate, down-your-throat message, which doesn't reflect the way Jesus approached sharing the good news with people. Jesus never hesitated from speaking the truth, but he always approached people with a heart of compassion. And then there's the other end of the spectrum. Sometimes we are so afraid that we're going to offend someone, or we fear being rejected, or we have a fear of not knowing enough, that we stay silent and we say nothing at all. But today, as we take a look at Acts 17, we are going to see that Paul and Silas were bold. They were not afraid to share the gospel, and they spoke truth with compassion. And I think there are some great lessons here for us on the importance of each one of us being the bringers of the good news and how we can approach reaching our community for Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, or your smartphone, or your tablet, you can turn to Acts 17, and we'll also have the verses on the screen at the front. And we're going to start here um, with verse 1. Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service. And for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. And he said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. Okay, let's take a look at what's going on in this section. Paul and the others arrive in Thessalonica, and they head for the synagogue. And then in verse 2, it says, As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he yelled and hollered at them through his bullhorn and told them to repent or else. Now, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies. And proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He reasoned with them using with the scriptures. Why? Because he engaged with them within a context that he knew they would understand. The people attending the synagogue knew the scriptures. These individuals were waiting for the promised Messiah. So Paul knew he needs to show them who Jesus was. And he did that by using what they already knew. And he used it in the scriptures to reveal to them that the Messiah had come. He tells them, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And the word reasoned here is really important because this word indicates that he was having a dialogue with them. A time of going back and forth and answering questions. He didn't march into the synagogue and start telling them how they were all wrong and stupid. No, he says in verse 3, he explained. And this word explained in the Greek means to open up. And it's the same word used when Jesus was walking with those along the Emmaus Road. In Luke 24 and 32, it says, They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures, Paul opened the scriptures to them and provided proof that the scriptures were true and had been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And by reasoning and explaining the scriptures to them, it says in verse four, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So a large number of Greek men and leading women in the area, plus Jewish people, were persuaded. Paul and Silas stepped out in boldness and reasoned and explained by simply proving Jesus was who he said he was. Church, we meet people everywhere who need to know Jesus is who he says he is. We can speak with authority of God's word and show them who Jesus is and that he came to save them. And that fear of not knowing enough to share the gospel is just the voice of the enemy trying to convince you not to share. You know what Jesus has done in your life. You know the story of where you came from and how Jesus radically transformed you. And when we tell people who Jesus is and how he changed us, some will believe. Now, not everyone in Thessalonica was excited about people turning to Christ. And in fact, there were Jews who were very angry, so angry That they went to the marketplace and rounded up people that were known to be troublemakers, and they started a mob. So starting at verse 5, it says, But some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas, so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some other believers instead, and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted. And now they're here, disturbing our city too. So the mob went to Jason's house. And when Paul and Silas weren't there, they dragged out Jason and some other believers and took them to the city authorities. And I love how the ESV translates what the mob was shouting here in verse 6. ESV version says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Isn't that exactly what the gospel does? It turns the world upside down. Isn't that exactly what Jesus came to do? Jesus was radical in his teaching, saying the first shall be last. You must surrender to win. You must serve to lead. And he himself, the God of the universe, became the humble servant. Following Jesus is living life upside down from the ways of the world. And for some to see that in believers, it makes them angry. They don't want to change their life because they don't see that their life isn't life at all, but a path that leads to death. And this is why it is so important that we share the gospel, even When it's hard, even when we face rejection, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father is through Him. We must offer the hope that only can be found in Jesus, even to a world that wants to reject it. Because if we choose to step outside of our fear, if we choose to be the bringers of the good news, and if just one person that we share Jesus with is saved, isn't it worth it? Do not underestimate the power of your testimony. Do not underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit speaking through you and what you can do with the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and through you. You can turn the world upside down for Jesus. So the crowd continues to accuse Jason here in verse 7. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. The people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond, and then they released them. So basically, Jason had to pay off the authorities and promise that he wouldn't bring Paul or Silas back there ever again. But what is amazing about this is in this moment, the church in Thessalonica is started. In three weeks of Paul and Silas teaching, the church of Thessalonica begins and becomes a strong and vibrant community of believers. So hear what Paul writes to them later on. And this is 1 Thessalonians 5 through 8. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece, throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. Isn't that incredible? See, we may never know the harvest that will come from the seeds that we plant. But church, we have to be willing to plant the seeds. So things are no longer safe for Paul and Silas. And we see in verse 10 that that very night the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. And as a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. So Paul and Silas go again to the synagogue, and it says the people there in Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. They were more teachable and willing to examine the truth of what Paul and Silas was presenting to them. And it says that they searched the scriptures day and night. That they dug into the scriptures to see if what Paul and Silas was sharing was true. And again, many of them believed. But there were still some that insisted on causing trouble The Jews from Thessalonica heard what Paul and Silas were up to, and they came down to Berea, stirring up the crowds again. And we see in verse 13, but when some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. So once again, Paul and Silas are facing an angry mob. And when this happened, they said, all right, forget this. We have had so much trouble and grief with this whole making disciples thing. We're done. We've done enough for Jesus. No. They understood that the sharing of the gospel isn't always going to be easy. Or met with people who like to hear what you have to say. But still, they continue on. And it says starting in 14, the believers after their once sending Paul onto the coast while Silas and Timothy remained behind. And those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. And then they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. So now Paul is in Athens all by himself. Now Athens at this time would have been considered like the cultural center of the ancient world. And when we think of culture, it tends to be defined by several things like education and art and politics. These are key influences that shape a culture. And Athens was well recognized in the world for these influences, especially when we think about education. So some of the greatest philosophers of all time, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, they came out of Athens. And it was a place for great thinkers to come and discuss and teach. So let's take a look at what Paul notices when he gets off the boat. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Paul gets off the boat, walks into Athens, and finds this city that is full of idols. In fact, there was a saying at the time that if you went to Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. And when Paul saw this, it says in the ESV translation that his spirit was provoked within him. His spirit is so troubled to see these idols everywhere. He is so moved by what he sees that in verse 17, it says, He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. So Paul, walking around in Athens was so impacted by the idolatry that he is witnessing that not only does he go to the synagogue, but he's preaching in the marketplace every day. And as we read these verses, we might think, wow, that is crazy. I can't imagine what it would be like to live in a place where there's idols everywhere. But church, I believe we absolutely do. Right now, in 2020, we live in a world full of idols now granted we might not drive down meridian and see statues of Zeus or Athena or Hermes there but an idol is anything that we worship that is not God money power fame possessions those are all definitely idols that we see in our world but you know our job can become an idol Our family can become an idol And this might be a tough one to hear But even our ministry Can become an idol And probably the most prevalent idol That we fight against Is the idol of self Anything That takes the place of God As the most important focus And priority in our life Is an idol And church I say this to myself, first and foremost, but when we look around at those who are worshiping our modern idols, are we moved in our spirits like Paul? Do we carry such a passion to save those walking in darkness that we are willing to speak out and tell people about the saving power found in Jesus? We need to love people in such a way that we are compelled to share Jesus with them. So Paul, along with speaking in the synagogues and marketplace, also had the opportunity to speak with the philosophers in Athens. And it says in verse 18, he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Another said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. So just to give you a bit of history, the Epicureans were what we'd probably consider hedonists. They believed that pleasure was the chief good in life. They did not believe in the afterlife. So they advocated living in such a way as to derive the greatest amount of pleasure possible during one's lifetime. So their motto might be, like, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And then the Stoics were pantheists, and which means they believed that everything is God and that he does not exist as a separate entity, but he's found in the rocks and the trees and every material thing. And self-control was regarded as the highest virtue in life, and they were known for being resolute. You know, we get that word Stoic, right? That's what they were known for. And they would probably have the motto, grin and bear it. But these aren't really just ancient philosophies, are they? We could probably think of people that we know who might fall under either one of these categories today. Now, some of them ridiculed what Paul was saying. They said, what is this babbler trying to say? And the word babbler here literally literally means a bird that picks up seeds and spits them back out without digesting them. that's a very vibrant image, right? But what they were saying is Paul was just rambling on about ideas that he had picked up somewhere without really understanding those ideas. That basically they were calling him a second class mind. And sometimes as Christians, the world considers us second class minds. A people without any real intelligence, that we just believe fantasy stories, and we don't really understand what it is that we're talking about. And it can be discouraging. But you know what these verses show us? It has always been like that. We might not be able to change the opinions of others, but that should never be the reason for not sharing the good news of the gospel. It didn't stop Paul. And in fact, some of them were interested in what Paul was saying. It says, Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. And it should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Does that remind you of anything in our modern society right now? Seemed to spend their time, all of their time, discussing the latest ideas. So in the the Stoic theology, they had some room for additional gods. They were intrigued. So they took him to the high council of the city. And the ESV translation, verse 19 reads, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. So what we are about to read Is what is known as one of paul's probably most famous sermons and it's called the sermon at the areopagus Which is translated to means mars hill So you might have heard that term uh, the sermon at mars hill and bringing paul to mars hill Would kind of be equivalent to bringing paul before the supreme court It was a forum for the rulers of athens to hold trials um, But also to debate and discuss important matters So as the only christian in the city Paul was asked to explain what he believed. So Paul is preaching the gospel in what was considered the intellectual capital of the world. So in verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. And I want to just stop here for a moment. Paul does such a great thing here. He starts by paying them a compliment. You are very religious in every way. He addresses them in a positive and engaging way. Now, if you have spent any amount of time on social media, you will see... That it seems if we're becoming a culture that tries to insult and demean each other into believing our point of view. And what is especially heartbreaking is that we see this even within the Christian community. Church, we cannot insult someone into the kingdom of God. Might I suggest... That no unbeliever is going to open up Instagram or Facebook and go, wow, that post with the snarky meme and the insults about how I live my life has totally changed my heart, and now I know Jesus is the answer. We need to show love and compassion to those who don't know Jesus yet. People without Christ are going to sin. We shouldn't be surprised when non-Christians act like non-Christians. Were the Athenians idolaters? Of course they were. But Paul didn't start by saying, You are going straight to hell, you idol-worshiping stupid pagans. Thank God you invited me here so I could show you the love of Jesus. He doesn't start with condemnation. He starts with admiration. He puts himself on common ground with them. He says, you guys are religious like I am. And then he says this. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it. To an unknown God. And again, Paul addresses something that is a part of their culture, something that they are familiar with. They would all know about this altar to the unknown God. So because they had so many gods that they worshipped in Athens, it said like 30,000, right, so many gods, they wanted to make sure that somehow they didn't miss a god right so to cover themselves so they didn't accidentally get smoked um or something they they want to make sure that they paid homage to the god that they might have missed so they had an idol to the unknown god right you got to cover all the bases got to cover all the bases and this is how paul captures their attention this god whom you worship without knowing is the one i'm telling you about Paul is saying, this God that you say you don't know, I do know. Let me tell you about him. And he goes to say, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of the heavens and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life to And breath to everything. And he satisfies every need. Now Paul is pointing out here the issues with their approach to God from a logical standpoint. He is saying, does it make sense that the God who created everything could be held within the walls of a temple? And Paul is also speaking to the cultural context of his audience He is explaining that God is not a God that lives in a temple, which was very much their cultural context of who a God was. And Paul also shares how our God is not a God who needs anything. Again, speaking to the cultural context. Because if you were living in Athens and wanted something from a God, you would have to go and give something to that God and hope it was acceptable so that you could get what you wanted. And different gods were in charge of different things. Like, for example, if you wanted money, you would make an offering to the goddess Artemis because she was the goddess of prosperity. And if you wanted wisdom, you would give an offering to Athena because she was the goddess of wisdom. And I discovered in my research for this message that there's also a goddess called Cloachina. I've never heard of the goddess Cloachina. She is the goddess of the sewer system. I have no idea what someone might want from her. And I won't even go there with what kind of offering might be required. But you can see that if you wanted something from a god or a goddess, you had to bring something to that god in order to receive what it is that you were looking for. And Paul is saying, no. Our god is the god who gives life. And breath And everything It isn't logical That the God who created everything Needs humans to put food out for him Or to give him things to obtain favor And Paul continues From one man he created All the nations Throughout the whole earth He decided beforehand When they should rise and fall And he determined their boundaries His purpose was for the nations To seek after God And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And I want to pause here again for just a moment to point out something. Again, Paul is speaking about something familiar to his audience He is not quoting scripture because it was not familiar to them at all. They would not be able to relate to it nor understand it. But he says, as your poets have said, and if you look in that verse 28, the words, we are his offspring are in quotes and it's a quote, not from scripture, but from a song written about Zeus. Paul was making a cultural connection with something that they could relate to. I think something important we need to take away from here is that Paul did not try to speak to them from only his own worldview. He understood the worldview of those he was talking to. And in fact, he knew their worldview so well that he used one of their poets to make a point. Church, we need to challenge ourselves to understand the culture that we live in. Now, let me be clear here. I am not saying we are to become like the culture that we, that we live in. But we need to read and listen to things in our culture so we can understand and respond to our culture like Paul did. We cannot isolate ourselves from culture. We have to have an awareness of what is going on in the world around us. And that means engaging with those within that culture, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, and in our community. To understand where they are coming from in order to show them what the love of Jesus is and can offer. We cannot demonstrate the love of Christ to others when we insist on staying on an island all by ourselves. And Paul continues in verse 29. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by a craftsman from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere To repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Paul is telling his audience that idolatry is wrong. Not by saying y'all are dumb for worshiping a bunch of rocks. But by by explaining that an idol made by man can never be the God who actually made man, God uses reason to show that they are not really worshiping the true God. And he also wasn't afraid to tell them the truth, that there is a day of judgment. That there is going to be an account for how everyone lives their lives And he shares about the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus is the only way to be saved. And they responded. Verses 32 through 34 say, When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. And that ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. I really want us to get what happened here. Not everyone accepted the message. It doesn't say, and everyone became saved. But it does say that some joined him and believed. Church, our job is not to save people. That's God's job. We are called not to save, but to point people to the one who can save. We must be willing to tell people the good news of Jesus so that they have the opportunity to come to know him as we do. And I think Paul and Silas' approach here to the people in Acts 17 show us how important it is to share the message of Christ And it's just as important how we should present the message of Christ. We need to engage people from a heart of compassion. We need to listen to those who we are engaging with. We need to understand their context and where they are coming from. And we need to respond, not with anger or insults, but boldly graciously, compassionately, and lovingly with truth. Every day, we should be asking ourselves the question, how can I be used by God today? How can I show Jesus to someone today? We should be as troubled as Paul was by the idolatry that we see all around us. We should be grieved when we see our friends and our co-workers and our family becoming wrecked by empty and destructive and pleasure-seeking behaviors. See, God created us to worship. And sin corrupted that desire. And that is why people are drawn to place something as an idol in their life. In absence of God, people fill that desire to worship God. With things. And it is up to us to show people caught up in the world that those things will never be fulfilling. That only a life worshiping the one true God is where they will find love and peace and hope. Philosophy asks, What does God want from us? The gospel says, Look, What God has done for us. This is the message that a lost and broken world needs to hear. As much as we might wish that we could just sit on someone and have them believe, it's probably not going to be the case. But we all must be evangelists. We all must be bringers of the good news. We need to tell people about how Jesus died for them and that they can be forgiven. We need to tell them that he rose again and gave us hope that we too will conquer death and have everlasting life. We need to tell them about the love and joy that can be found in a life surrendered to Jesus. If we step out boldly, And in obedience, with the power of the Holy Spirit, God will give us the opportunities to share his truth. I'm going to invite Makanalani up to the platform. And sharing the good news can be done in so many ways. And one of those ways is through the arts. And Makanalani is going to perform a worship dance. And this is just such an incredible way to share. You can come on up. And as Makanalani shares with us this morning, I would ask that we would take this time to seek after the Lord. That we would ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us on how we could be used by God today. That our hearts would be provoked to seek out those bound by the chains of idols who need to hear the freedom Found in the good news of Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did for each one of us. He saw us in our idolatry, our brokenness, our rebellion, and He chased after us. He pursued us, revealing to us how a life without Him is empty. And how through his death and resurrection, we can be transformed and made whole. The good news of Jesus was shared with us. How can we share the good news of Jesus in our community today?